Uh, do you want to start it out? Sure, I'll be happy to. So <laughs> we have uh, our guest today, Fred, on Promotion Man Podcast and the Promotion Man Radio Show is uh, Robert Duncan, and he's got a book out. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some of the folks that he's probably uh, written some disparaging things about in his magazine maybe back in the day. <laughs> that was their mojo. That was their whole thing was how can we say something you know derogatory and funny all in the same review. And, and he did this at, like uh, editor at 22 years old. And first of all, how in the heck do you pull that off? I was still picking my nose when I was 22 years old. I can't even imagine being an editor of a magazine. Yeah, I, you know it's, it's funny. I, I, I've uh, when I was a kid, rock stars were kids. Yeah. You know, I mean, rock stars were teenagers. Mm-hmm. You know, there was pl- plenty of. I, I mean, I would Dion and all those guys. And then when the Beatles came out, which was really kind of the, you know, thing that rocked my world and sent me off on this, you know, bad course that I've been on for 40 some years. But uh, it was, you know, George Harrison, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, was 19 years old. Yeah. So I gauged my whole life to, to that. And, and once you got past 19, I thought, well, you're you're over the hill, so so <laughs> I suppose I was in a hurry because I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm 21 or 22, and I think I was 21 when I went to Cream, right? And uh, and I'm so therefore I'm two years over the hill because George Harrison was 19. Yeah, does that make sense? I mean, I had a different calibration. So you're thinking the uh, the shelf life was not going to be very long for a person like you uh, to stay in rock and roll. And you know what? And, and then he also exactly. he also mentioned uh, when you say George Harrison, you saw the Beatles at Shea Stadium. I did. Really, I it was one of the one of the first concerts I saw. I think I was twelve years old. It was nineteen sixty six, and um, I had a friend who was kind of my guru in music. He was my classmate, and he was my neighbor. We actually shared the same birthday. And there's a version of him in Loudmouth. But, um, and his, and, uh, the Beatles were coming to town and this ticket sold out in two minutes. And, you know, we were young enough that we didn't quite understand how to get tickets, but it, it, <laughs> except he did. His father was kind of an, an Irish mafia guy in New York. And he said, uh, Hey dad, we'd like to go to, um, see the Beatles at Chase stadium. So dad called his contacts <laughs> and sure enough, we got seats in the press box at, um, at the Shea Stadium concert of the Beatles, nineteen sixty-six. Wow! And uh, and um, and we were the only people in the press box. <laughs> Us and our our two little dates who we thought were got <laughs> cannon press girls with so taking funny. them to the Beatles. You know what good are you? Um, but I, I don't think it impressed them enough. But but uh, so we're in the in, in the press box there for the Beatles, and you know it was. You know, basically, it was the sound of insects screaming uh, was all you heard. And uh, but God, you know, they were the godhead at that. Yeah, I mean, that, time. I mean, you, they're still uh, the godhead, right? Right. So, so it was that was just that was mind blowing experience, and it was a, you know, that was their second to last concert before they um, played their last concert 
in uh, in San Francisco a few, you know, maybe a few days later. Well, I've only seen video footage of it, and to me, I can't imagine with so much screaming from the girls, could you even hear the music at all, being in that weird setting? Because it's not the greatest place for a concert. They didn't even have the amplification, though, if you really looked at that video. (laughs) They had the same type of amplification that you would have in a small club. Right. So So what was the sound like? (laughs) Terrible. Yeah, they were playing through um, their famous Vox Super Beetle amps. Yeah. And I don't, I don't, you know, I wasn't paying any attention to the PA system, but you know, <laughs> it, it wasn't much. You could hear a little bit. Right. You know, but really the screaming and the, the, the insect screaming. Uh, what, a ph- what a phenomenon. Hey, I, I'm dying to get into a story. Lloyd, can I go after one of the yeah, stories go right for now? It, man. All right. Because being a Detroiter and being around the whole Detroit scene, and we've talked about it so often on the podcast and in our radio show, the very first thing I grabbed onto, Robert, about you was Iggy Pop in a hotel a lobby. And I guess you were there to interview David Bowie. Was that? Can you well, tell well, us? It was, it was actually, yeah. Tell us that story, please. Well, well, it was actually in David Bowie's room. So the the publicist takes me up. I've got. I'm scheduled to do an interview for Cream with Bowie, and uh, the publicist takes me up to the room, and you know, and, and lets me in and says, "Just wait. You know, David will be along in in, in a little bit," and. Um, all right, and the room is pretty dim, you know, kind of rock star dim, you know, the way Keith Richards <laughs> yeah. decorate, decorates all his lamps with, with uh, scarves. Oh, on. we all do. So yeah. Like, was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I don't because I always think they're going to catch fire, but yeah. uh, but that's a different story. But anyways, I'm sitting there in this dark room, and I realize, and there's like two beds in the room, and I realize wait a second, there's somebody asleep on the bed over there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I take a peek, and it's a little uh, platinum-haired guy who I recognized as Iggy Pop. Whoa. And, uh, and Iggy Pop just kept, you know, I, I don't think we exchanged any words. We may have at some point looked at each other, and <laughs> and apparently he was used to this. Um, and... Uh, so, so this went on snoozing. So this had to be the era of China Girl, right? No, Lloyd? no, it's earlier. Really? Yeah. No, the... this was nineteen seventy-five or six. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Uh, which is when I was in in Detroit. Because when so. I had met David Bowie, that was one of the. Because I had uh, been with Virgin Records, I had said to him that you know I had known Iggy, and so that was our kind of ability to chat a little bit so robert where where were you born were you a detroiter or did you just go there because you thought it was a vibrant music city or maybe give us a little history of you know where you came from and how you got to big d well i was actually born in sheboygan wisconsin okay gotcha and uh but but i left there at six months old um possibly accompanied by my parents uh uh and uh we went to chicago and we went to we went to Minnesota, rural Minnesota, and then we, when I was in fourth grade, we moved to New York mm. and to Manhattan, and it was so, which was a whole different thing. And uh, I, re- I remember coming from the the rural, you know, farmland of Minnesota to New York was that was a shock to the system. Right, and you know, I I was used to riding my bike. I could get in the morning in Minnesota. I'd get on my bike and I could ride all day 
and and never be run over or molested. And uh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> whereas, funny. whereas in New York, it's like game on. All cars trying to run you over and 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 people trying to molest you. And you played. I remember I was taught how to. I said, "Where do you play here?" I said to one of the New York kids. He says, "Oh yeah, I play here in the street." And and you know, and he showed me how to pick up a piece of dog shit with a bent stick and fling it at somebody. So, you know, and, and eventually I got into it. I became a great New York chauvinist. But so I, uh, and then I, I lived in, in California for a while, but I met a guy out in California. And again, this is all when I'm, I played in bands since I was 12 years old, but I met a guy in California where I went for about 10, 10 months when I had decided I was going to give up music because it was, because, because just as your band gets, you know, to where you think you're going to, something's going to happen and you get an agent and, and then the drummer quits or the drummer explodes as in, you know, as in the spinal tap. Yeah. But, uh, (laughs) anyways, I met a guy named Ed Ward out in, out in Sausalito, California. And I just stumbled where I was looking for an apartment and I started walking towards, I saw this sign for a basement apartment. I thought, well, that's in my price range. And I went across the street and here comes a guy carrying a box. He looks like a hell's angel, long black hair and a devil beard and a black cowboy hat. And he says, you know, forget about it. I got it already. And, uh, and I'm like, this is the end of a long day and looking for apartments. And I said, well, shit, can I come, can I just look at it anyway? So I did, and he came into the apartment and put down the box, and underneath he had a a uh, laminate uh, on a lanyard, a press pass. Oh. And I said, "Hey, uh, uh, you know who who do you write for? Your press? Who who do you write for?" And he says, "Rolling Stone, Cream," and he goes on and on. And I'm going, "Well, that that's something I was thinking I could do because I I've been a rock and roll singer, and uh, and uh, and that was my entry." And he introduced me to a guy. We hung out for, we hung out all the time. And 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 a third guy who hung out with us, ate dinner with us every night because Ed was a big. Ed just died last week, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. um, yeah. I'm, I'm, and I'm sitting here working on a on a little remembrance for him, a video remembrance. But uh, it, he he introduced me to a guy named John Morthland, who went off to shortly thereafter went off to Cream in Detroit to become the interim editor because cream was going through editors like, you know, not like nothing. And, uh, he went to become the interim editor and called me up and offered me a job. Wow. That's the way I got to cream. And it was just the most serendipitous, oddest thing. And, you know, and I, I had a, I had been freelancing under Ed's Edwards tutelage for about six months, but, but I you mean, know, when you got there, you got there, experience. you got there at the right time. I mean, you, you got there when you could really have a lot of material to write about, you know? Yeah. And, 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 uh, they, you know, the, John's offer to me was uh, you can be the copy boy, which is the low man on the totem pole in, right. in uh, <laughs> in an editorial office. Yeah. And it was like, fuck it. It was way better than what I was making, which was mostly zero. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, but the, and then John did his interim business, trying to kind of steady the ship at at uh, Cream, and went went off to New York himself. And I was still there as you know some junior editorial guy. And they kept hiring uh, other editors, and none of them got along with Lester. Lester would just undermine them just <laughs> to to bits. And and finally, it was 
And it, the truth is they finally just kind of worked their way through the editorial department, and the publisher said to me one night, took me aside and said, you want to be editor? And I'm like, okay. And, uh, and that's how I... That's how I got to be managing editor. Actually, he offered that I would be editor, and I said, well, nobody can can be the boss of Lester, Lester Banks. Mm-hmm. And I said, why don't you make me managing editor, <clears throat> and I'll do all the, um, you know, the organized work. Right. Not that I was the most organized person. And, and Lester will have the honorific title of editor, and that's how that all happened. So, and, and the and, rest yeah, was history. 20, maybe 22. <laughs> So we're talking to Robert Duncan, whose book is called Loudmouth, and had a history of being around um, a lot of people in the rock and roll world, mostly through Cream Magazine, but you had worked in other publications. There's a, you know, and you wrote a book about Kiss, and there's a lot of things I want to get to. But one of the things that I found pretty funny in your book was a plane ride to Chicago with Ronnie Wood and Keith Richards. Uh, for the new barbarians, yeah. can you tell us that story? Yeah, that was, well. By that time, I had I was freelancing for Cream, and I really I, I freelanced for a lot of magazines. But I I had left Cream, I had moved back to New York, and I was freelancing. And <clears throat> they wanted a story on this new Barbarians tour, which was which was uh, you know a Ron Wood Keith Richards solo side project. Uh, tour and it had all sorts of great musicians in it. Um, oh, the famous jazz bassist. Uh, yeah, I can't remember them all, but they were. Um, so the yeah, the great thing. So we all loaded in. It, we we met up in the hotel, fancy hotel in New York City, up on Park Avenue, and uh, and we all got in this long string of limos and went across the river to the. Um, there's, there's a executive airport, so so called in uh, Jersey and where all the rich guys land their private planes. And we went to get on their private plane with a whole bunch of band folks and, and everybody. <clears throat> and now, you know, when you say private plane, you think of one of those small, you know, puddle jumpers <laughs> jets. And this was like a seven twenty seven. Wow. And I, and they, they, I remember they pull the cars right out onto the tarmac, you know, 20 feet from the uh, airplane, you know, stairs. And and you just get out of the car and go right up. There was no security. I mean, there wasn't such security as there is now. But you go up the stairs, and they they said, hey, why don't you sit here? And, and the front half of the airplane was uh, basically a, a British pub. And the back half of the airplane <laughs> had, like, like kind of seats like a, like a normal commercial aircraft. But yeah. the front half was, like... You know, plaid rug and and these you know <laughs> leather seats that were you know bolted to the floor. They were like airline seats. They had they had uh, you know seatbelts on them. And and then behind the bar, you know, everything was just really well done. It was really as close to uh, to a earthly pub, a terrestrial That's so pub, crazy. As you get, get, you know, and, and then, you go up to the bar. I went up to the bar. I said, "Well, okay, give me a." Uh, one thing I had learned uh, from Ed Ward was to drink Guinness, Guinness Stout. So I went up to the bar and I, and you know, kind of a UK drink. And so I said to the bar tender, I said, "Can I have a you know a stout?" And sure enough, there was stout on tap. Wow! And, 
and he put it he you know he served it up and there's a way to to make the head just right on a pint of stout <laughs> and so he served it up beautifully put it on a new barbarian's coaster and slid it over to me and later in the flight probably not much later i i went back to him and i walk up to the bar and he's already sliding the guinness across the bar to me and you know this guy was just like the, the great you know <laughs> rock and roll bar- bartender. bartender yeah Oh, he was great. So that, yeah, we flew to, uh, oh, we flew, they were doing a gig in D.C., so we flew to Baltimore, which is outside, not far from D.C., and and uh, we, you know, we roll into this, in our, in again, in the limos, we roll in under the um, arena, uh, they play their set, uh, you know, a bunch of encores, they come off, we all get right into the, into the uh, limos again and back to the airport and onto the tarmac and up into the 727 back to New York. You know, it was like we were gone like, you know, three hours, four hours, you know, it was, uh, it was quite, quite a, a, you know, a window into the rock star lifestyle. Is that the same time that you and Ronnie Wood were, he offered you some blow and it fell (laughs) into white carpet? Oh oh, oh, yeah. I mean, Oh yeah, that was, so we're, I, I leave out the part that I was supposed to do a job. Anyways, I was supposed to do an interview, and Ronnie Wood is the nicest guy, and I had spent some time with him before, um, driving around drunkenly in the back of a of a van, uh, and we on our way to Bobby Womack's house to for a late night jam after a Faces gig. That was in Detroit. Wow. But anyways, so we get back in this thing. We we get back to New York. And he keeps saying to me, oh, man, you know, nice guy. We're going to get to that interview. I promise I'm not going to stiff you, you know. Um, So I'm sitting, I'm cool. It's a big suite. I'm sitting around the room, and here comes, sitting around the the living room of it with, um, oh, Ian McCloggan from Faces, a great piano player and and a great drinker. Uh, Ronnie Wood, uh, a couple other people in here, walks into the room with his Jack Daniels, his Keith Richards, and so I'm just, you know, I'm sitting in a little circle with Keith Richards. Royalty. And, uh, you're you're my... with royalty. And 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 so the, the night wears on, and we're drinking and laughing, and, and, um, and <laughs> Keith is having a good time, although I, I, I point out in loudmouth, I can't understand what he's saying. You know that Mike Myers imitation of right. yeah, yeah, yeah. he used to do on SNL? Well, that that was it. You, you all right, all right, all right, all right. and you're like, you know, what just said? You yeah. know? But it seemed like fun. So at one point, so so my girlfriend had been expecting me home at some point, and I said, uh, and again, I slightly fictionalize all this for for um, for the book. But I said to Ron Wood, I said, hey, you know, this is before cell phones, of course, and I said, I I, I got to make a call, and he says, oh, you know come on and he leads me into the bedroom and the bedroom is a white shag rug a white bedspread white walls uh, a white you know bedside table and uh, he and he points me to the white phone and I pick it up and I start I, I dial out uh, to my girlfriend and um, and well, I pull it towards me I dial it and then Ron Wood comes back in the room and says oh sorry and he starts scraping I had shoveled a whole mound of white powder into the white shag rug. And uh, and he was very nice about it, but he was just rescuing what was left. And, uh, and you know, 
you want to feel like a douchebag around the rock stars? With this guy. <laughs> that, that's what you do. Nice. You spill their blow on white shag carpet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no way to retrieve it. It was like it was an all white room. It was uh, it was the, the cocaine room. So was uh, who knows? It was a white powder. It what, could have been anything. When you're in company like that, I mean, is is it kind of? Like, I mean, I can't imagine you know being in a scenario like today where everyone has a, a camera on their phone, but. I mean, was oh, yeah. it was it pretty much you know cameras off limits while you're hanging out with the bands? Like, we'll give you the story, but you, no photos. Was it like that, or were they pretty open to it? Well, we didn't have you know cameras. I we didn't have our iPhones, and and you know a writer wouldn't carry a camera. There would be a designated photographer, and oh, that, okay. you know they'd let the photographer in for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. But there was no photographer sitting in that room ah. with Keith Richards and. And Ronnie and Ian McCloggan and uh, whoever else it was. That makes sense. Uh, so, you know, it was just, I can't imagine that happening today because of the, you know, the because of the iPhones. Right. The, the, you, know, you could take a picture of his drugs and get him in trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything would be completely different today. Thank God for no social yeah. media when I was young. I've always told my daughters that. <laughs> so you were, you know, there were, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, there was no uh, there was no publicist there in the room, even right. And this is you know these very unguarded. Yeah, they were very unguarded. Yeah. So you have a and, story and about so, the Clash in New York um, that I yeah. wanted to get into because Rock the Cosbar. I don't know if you know this or not, but the video was actually filmed here in Austin, and it was very a very good video, but it was very low budget. Some guy in a bedsheet, you know, walking up and down yeah. Congress Avenue. For Rock yeah. the Cosbar for the Clash, and it got a ton of airplay on MTV. It's like every time you turned it on, that freaking video was on, <laughs> right? Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, well, yeah, this I encountered them before Rock the Cosbar. It was um, I had a friend named Sandy Perlman who was the he was the um, basically the manager and co lyricist and uh, and an inventor of the Blue Oyster Cult. And he uh, and, and and we had become friends, and and uh, he called me up. He, he Sandy was not a drinker. He he passed a couple years ago. They're all dropping like flies. I must say. I know. And, I know. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm. I'm. I was younger than a lot of them. So, right. So I probably got a year or two left. Maybe less drugs. Um, <laughs> so Sandy didn't like to drink, but I liked to drink, and he said, and I had to introduce Sandy to this bar downtown Manhattan called the Bells of Hell, run by these Englishmen, and they had like the best jukebox in New York, and and they they had the, you know they had the Clash and the Sex Pistols on their jukebox because they had their mates in England sending them uh, send us the latest stuff that hadn't come out in the states yet, so they had a really cool jukebox, and it was a a great place where they let you run a tab uh, at the bar till infinity. You know, I, I'm sure the the place went out of business. With I'm sure they had, I, I had a tab of thousands of dollars, and uh, and they never asked you to pay it. They were just great. And there was a crazy piano player down there named Al Fields, and I, I, I fictionalize him in Loudmouth, but uh, it, it's it's fundamentally the true story. I just didn't want to have to answer to anybody's. Uh, saying, hey, it wasn't exactly like that. It's like, well, okay, I'm going to change the name so I can make it exactly the way I remember it. And there was a guy named Al Fields, and he 
he worked uh, in a burger joint uptown during the day serving burgers. And at night, he would come down to the Bells of Hell and drink this drink called kerosene, which was a combination of all sorts of murky <laughs> liquors. And it, it sounds in a, in, a, in a beer stein. Oh, and geez. he would drink many of these in an evening. He he was and he was much older than us. You know, he was like in his mid fifties when we were all in our twenties. But but he you know so you got to be friends with him because he was he was always in everybody's face. So but he would play piano and and styled himself as piano player. But I noticed that he could kind of play an intro to a song and then that he'd have to play the intro again. And he you know he he really really wasn't. A, a, serious or good piano player he could make it sound all right for about 12 minutes is what i estimated yeah and, and then he would fall apart and of course the kerosene on top of that <laughs> so my friend sandy called and said hey um the my sandy got the gig to produce give him enough rope the clash album the the first clash album to be released in the states and um he says hey the guys and me want to come down to the bells and, uh, you know, meet Al. And I'm going, you know, why would you want to meet Al? And they do, well, they're looking for a piano player for their, for the record, for this song. Oh, no kidding. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like, dude, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not sure Al is your man. I love him dearly. But, but oh, no, no, no. The, you know, they, I guess he had sold them on it. And so <laughs> he came down with the clash and, and, the Clash were kind of, you know, a little bit reserved. I remember I was, you know, trying to chat them up, and I, you know, I was drunk, and I'm, I'm buying everybody beers on my tab, of course. Yeah, and that you uh, never paid. <laughs> that I never paid. So I, I, I thought, well, God damn it, these guys aren't very appreciative. But so eventually, I he, he said, uh, Sandy said, well, let's let's uh, let's get uh, let's get Al to play now. So I went to get Al uh, in the other room. And uh, there was a kind of a performance room in the front in the front bar room, and and Al was as shit faced as I'd ever seen him. I said, Al, the, the, this band, this band called the Clash. Nobody had ever heard of him. Nobody in the bar would have recognized him. And he said, this is band called the Clash. They're like a big deal in England, and they want to talk to you about you know playing on their record and. And blah blah blah. It took me a long time to get him get this through his head. Many explanations, and finally, he came with me and into the back room and sat down at the table, and we all shook hands all around. And then, as I say in the book, there's it, it, a true story. Somehow, Al, who was as shit faced as I've ever seen him, managed to kind of pull his shit together. <laughs> and I imagine this is the same the same string he pulled when he got up in the morning and had to go serve burgers all day with a massive hangover. But anyways, finally Sandy said, Al, go up on stage and do something. So Al went up and did something and it was all his crazy shit and just all intros, you know, but the, the, the Sandy called me, you know, they were there for about an hour or so. And, and, and then the, the clash left and Sandy left and he called me back and he said, or he called me and left me a message. I don't know how he got a hold of me. We didn't have cell phones, but he said, "Hey, um, have Al at the studio, you know, at the next day at you know eleven thirty or something." And uh, <laughs> so the best part is that I, I the next day I called I called Al and I said I woke him up. Ah, bah, bah, bah. And he talked like that. He was a 
he was a. I think what they were also enchanted with was Al was black, and they thought you know that was a, that was an authentic. They wanted an authentic black man oh. on their record. You know, they were always very conscious about race. Uh, you know, good for them. And uh, but Al. I, I said, Al, you know, we got to be up at this place at 1130, the studio. And I'm not sure he remembered the whole night. And I said, and, and let me let me come over to your house. He lived a couple blocks from me. I said, let me come over to your house and, and, and show you what they're thinking. Because I knew Al. Al was kind of jazz oriented if he was oriented towards anything. And I went over to his house and I tried to show him how to play rock and roll piano. And mind you, I don't play piano, but I know, you know, ding, 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 you know, uh, I know Little Richard, and I know you know all the great rock and roll players. And so I sat down. Al had a piano in his house, and I sat down with him on the piano bench and would bang with my hand and show him. You know, you're doing like I think these are eighth notes. Al, just do that a lot. And anyways, it, w- it was pretty hopeless. And we went up to the to the fancy Columbia Records studio. I forget where it was. I think it was in the 30s in New York. And the band were there and they were very nice to Al and they set him up in the studio and, and it very, and I, I was in the control booth with, uh, with Joe Strummer and Mick Jones and, and my wife, Ronnie Hoffman, who's a photographer, speaking of photographers there. So there are some photographs of this. And, uh, and he would, Joe was talking to, uh, Al on the, on the talk box and, and telling him, well, you know, we could do take after take, and Al just couldn't get. And finally, Joe says, okay, I'm going to go out there in the room. And there's some great photos on my, my wife's uh, website of Joe sitting in the room with, with Al trying to. He thought, well, maybe he needed to calm Al down, so hang out with him. And uh, and that wasn't it. And finally, <laughs> <laughs> after, oh, an hour, hour and a half, uh, Joe says to Sandy Perlman, who was there as the producer, and said, uh, Sandy can I talk to you in the hall. And he went and talked to him in the hall and came back and said, okay, it leans into the talk. The, the, what do they call it? The talk back mic and says, uh, says, uh, okay, Al, I think we got it. And, uh, and that was the, uh, that we, they didn't have it. And they, so they got Alan. I know the backstory is that they got Alan Lanier from the Blue Oyster Cult to come in and play it. And he did it in like one take. Um, and, but, uh, you know, Sandy said, look, we're, we're going to not give, Alan credit. Alan's agreed to not take credit on the record sleeve. And so, um, we won't tell Al and it will just be our little secret. Cause of course, Al would not know what, you know, if Alan Lanier played or he played, he so they, you, they should have just so, thanked Al and then he would have never known. Cause that you would have covered both bases in, you know, exactly. just forget the last name. Yeah. That would <laughs> be just, easy. Just, you know, there weren't a lot of side men on the, on the, on the date. So, so, but Al, so Al went. He so, the, but he turned this into a career. Al Fields did. He went to the the, the class for planning at like the Academy of Music or something in New York, and he went there, knocked at the back door, and here's a 55 year old black man in a in a. He always wore kind of a suit or an ascot. He he kind of dressed, you know, 40s 50s style, and so he knocks in the in the bodyguards like what do you want he says well tell joe strummer i'm here i'm al fields and blah 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 and and he took he had xeroxed one of the pictures my wife had taken and he used that as his id and they let him in and there is a wonderful picture of al fields with joe strummer 
and um, and Andy Warhol's in the picture, wow. and all these other kind of New York hipsters. And so Al managed to, and then I, I moved to California. I had to finally stop writing about rock and roll because it was, I, I had a kid and I needed to make some money. And I moved to California, and I was working in the bowels of a bank, uh, doing writing you know, really boring copy. And, and I remember I, at lunch, I would go down and I would look at the rock and roll magazines in the first floor of the, the skyscraper we were in. And one day I picked up rock scene and I'm flipping through it. And there's a spread of Al Fields in a picture of Al Fields, the Joe Strummer and Debbie Harry and all these, they're all together in this picture. <laughs> and it says, and the caption says, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Al Fields, a clash piano player. Wow. So that, he, he proved that, that you can be a 55-year-old punk rocker then. I guess so, right? I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> well, let's it move was, on. Let's move like, on from Al. Can we? Yeah. Of course. So I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, you brought up Lester Bangs. I mean, and, and if anyone yeah. didn't know who Lester Bangs was from reading his work, he was made notorious in in the film Almost Famous, which uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman played his character. So I was just kind of curious. Do you think that uh, Cameron Crowe gave his character justice and did Philip uh, pull him off since you knew the guy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I knew him well. And I knew him in Detroit when, when I when I went to when I worked at Cream, we worked together and then we would go out every night together because, you know, I was a similar kind of wild child right and uh, and then when i moved to new york I, I i had the cheapest apartment in new york my wife says it was 150 bucks it was Whoa. like on 14th street and 6th avenue which is even even you know even back in the 80s this was uh, or i guess it was 70s i don't know it was an outrageously cheap apartment and i and and the guy next door that keeled over and i called up lester and I said, hey, there's an apartment next door to me is, is coming available, and it's the cheapest apartment in New York, and you're always talking about wanting to come to New York. And uh, he says, all right, tell the guy I'm coming and, you know, loan me the money, and th- there we go. And so that's so – and then we hung out together in New York for a while until I, I couldn't take it anymore because Lester was a, was a difficult case. Um, he was brilliant. Uh, uh, he was uh, – and he was – Yes, Philip Seymour Hoffman did a really good job capturing it. Cool, nice. And um, you know, I, and I think um, Cameron Crowe, who I know a little bit, and uh, he, I think he was, you know, made uh, Lester could be lovable, but he made him. He kind of emphasized the lovable side. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and, and that Lester and that makes sense, with, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, for kind of a mainstream movie. Yeah. Now, you started your book uh, basically with a story about you, a buddy who was living in Cleveland, and a very scrawny, very young Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, true, yeah. So tell yeah, me... that's a... Go ahead, tell me about that, because I want. I know Lloyd loves Kiss, so he's going to ask you about the Kiss book, but I wanted to get into the Bruce Springsteen thing a little bit before Lloyd went into that. Well, the Bruce Springsteen thing was just, it was like a Bruce Springsteen song. I think I say that in the book. And, and it, I, you know, I fictionalized it only slightly in, in the book because, you know, who remembers all the details? Um, but I, I um, 
I got a message at the cream office, and this is back when there were messages and there were secretaries that would take messages and stuff like that. And the receptionist had taken a message, and she says the guy wouldn't give me his name. It's just his initials, B.S. B- B- and he said, <laughs> and, uh, and he said uh, he's. And in, in she wrote on the little pink slip, and I have that on my website. I, I still I found that that while you were out slip um, said come to Cleveland, and I, I had met Bruce in Detroit, and we had really hit it off, I guess. <laughs> and uh, and even though we're different people, like he was you know, very kind of he didn't drink. Drinking was a big part of my uh, my entertainment value. I always thought. Uh, but he said, come to Cleveland. So I went to the publisher. I said, hey, would you pay for me to go to Cleveland to, to hang with Bruce? And he's like, yeah, 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 death. So um, I went down there, and I said, I called Bruce, and I said, hey, I got a friend down there who's a Cleveland native, and he would he could take us around and show us the real Cleveland. I said, that would really be a gas. And I was calling him not as a journalist. I was calling him just as a, as a buddy. Let's do something fun. And... So I call. I had my friend, and I call him Charlie in the book, but it's based on this guy Peter Lochner, who was one of the founders of Pear Ubu, which is their kind of beloved avant rock band down there, and and he was involved with Rocket Rocket from the Crips, which was another kind of very hip um, Cleveland band, mm-hmm. and and Peter was a, a nut, a really wild guy. I I loved him, but uh, you know he was. A, he was a nut, and he drank a lot, and and died, you know, at the age of like twenty four from cirrhosis or something. Wow! Uh, <laughs> so, so that's how how big a drinker. There's lots of drinking in this, these stories. Yeah, I noticed anyways, that. I said, "Hey, <laughs> come, uh, come, you know, let's give Bruce Springsteen a tour of uh, a tour of Cleveland." And so um, Peter rolls up in his junker, you know, spewing, you know, pollution, and. And he's, you know, and we get into the car and I said to Bruce, oh, you sit in the front seat. And he said, no, no, you sit in the front seat. And, and, and he sat in the back seat. And of course we aren't wearing seatbelts because you didn't wear seatbelts then. And he's hanging over the middle of the front seat where Peter's driving and I'm on the passenger side and he's hanging over. And I, it, that really was like a, a Bruce Springsteen song. And he was, you know, he was, uh, before he had, done weightlifting and all he was a skinny kid and he was a, he was a few years he was like three he's three years older than me um but and peter drove us all around cleveland and you know the the places he wanted to point out were all like well there's a dive bar i got thrown out of and there's a dive bar my band played and here's and uh, you know the driving was just crazy and I, you know again it was so long ago i couldn't remember the exact um the exact way he was crazy in driving so i i uh because it i made it a novel so i could uh introduce another i i took the behavior of my friend david roter who was a songwriter for blue oyster cult and others and uh i put he's he's this he's the guy who backed up on the freeway and uh stuff like that so we went all over cleveland this crazy car and crazy driving and and he he eventually took us back to the hotel, and it was just. And as we got back, Peter reached. He reached in his glove compartment, and he, you know, there was all a bunch of shit in there. He's dumping it all on the floor, and he he finds some bullets. He and he gives 
a bullet to me and a bullet to Bruce. They're like forty-five caliber bullets, and a, and takes a bullet for himself. And he says, "This is how we'll remember." And it was like, "Oh my God!" You know, when I got to writing the book and telling this story, I thought, "I mean, that's like that should be the beginning of the story. This is how we'll remember with the bullets." Yeah. And I kept that bullet for for ten or I don't know what Bruce did with his, but I kept mine for. <laughs> You know, many, many years until I, until I had a kid and I thought, oh shit, this old bullet might explode and kill my kid. And, oh my God. And I did actually go, as it says in the end of the book, I did go to the Hudson river and throw it in the. Wow. River. And that was it, the, it, it, was, it was a perfect metaphor. So. And that was the darkness at the edge of town tour. Um, this was very I beginning. went on tour with him for darkness. Okay. Um, this was before that. Got this it. Got, like, this is the very, very beginning. Okay. This is like a Born to Run, I think. Yeah, yeah, Born oh, to Run, wow. which is a phenomenal album. All right, Lloyd, yeah, are you ready to ask him um, about your band that you love? Yeah, Kiss. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you got a, a ton of stories. Who was your favorite member in the band? You don't have to go into like you know a lot of the great stories of Kiss, but you can read the book to get that. But <laughs> who was who was your favorite character, if you will, uh, with or without the mask? Well, well, you know. I got to be I got to be most friends with Gene Simmons. Okay, and it it, it in uh, so he and I had this teasing relationship. Or I mean, I well, most rock stars I knew I didn't I tried to treat them like regular people, and that meant I would tease them. So I I teased Gene Simmons a lot. Uh, as I remember, he told somebody after he looked at or read the Kiss book, he said, "Yeah, Duncan really." finds the uh, obscure angles. So, um, <laughs> you know, so, so Gene, Gene, and you know, Gene was my friend. I mean, I don't, you know, I haven't agreed with him in, in recent years, some of the stuff he's pulled, but, but we were friends and we were teasing friends. And I understood that he knew that there was a certain amount of tongue in cheek in the kit and kiss. I mean, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't entirely serious. He was having fun. I mean, I got to jump in here uh, for a second, Robert. Tongue in cheek. Come on, yeah. tongue. <laughs> Gene Simmons. <laughs> Hope he didn't lick you. Hope he didn't lick oh, you, Robert. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Get, oh no, no, you're right. Um, yeah, we got so we got along, and um, and I would see him from time to time. And one of the times I I saw him, I have to drop this in there. So one of my old childhood buddies married Liza Minnelli, and when he had a 30th birthday party, he asked Liza to invite everybody she knew in in uh, New York. This was in her New York apartment, in their New York apartment, and and she, he she invited everybody, you know, Gregory Peck and, and and De Niro and all this stuff, and was there, and I and I was there because I was his childhood buddy, and I was standing near the door at some point in the party, and. Um, there's a knock at the door. Nobody hears it. And so I went over and I opened the door to Liza Minnelli's apartment. And, and who's standing there um, but Gene Simmons with his date, who happened to be Diana Ross. Mm. And oh. Gene, Simmons, Gene Simmons looks at me like, what the fuck are you doing here? Again, I'm the guy who tries to torment him all the time. And and he's go, he's been invited to the swankiest, you know, Hollywood party in, in New York he's ever been to. 
and here is this asshole answering the door. And so uh, that that's my... I, I got to tell you, got I got to tell you, this is so funny you tell this story because last week we had Tom Weschler from uh, Detroit and, and did a lot of stuff with Bob yeah. Seeger. But anyway, he... I had to ask him a kiss question, and he told me that he was at a Diana Ross concert because he covered a lot of Motown artists in Detroit as well, and Gene took him down below the stage and said, I want to take a photo with Diana without my without makeup, my makeup yeah, on. Yeah. And so Tom was so freaked out after he took it because he was afraid <laughs> that these pictures would leak out without Gene's makeup on that he just pulled the roll out and gave it to Gene, and, and that was the end of it. <laughs> yeah. So that's funny how these two podcasts have kind of tied together. <laughs> I know. Well, the book's called, the book's called Loudmouth yeah. uh, by Robert Duncan, and it's been great to have you with us. Thank you for calling in and being a guest on the Promotion Man podcast show. For sure. I've enjoyed well, your stories, I, man. I well, I appreciate you guys having me. It's it was, it's, it's really fun, and uh, and you're down in Austin, right? Yeah, we're yeah, in Austin. yeah, yeah. We're in Austin, okay. Texas. Well, I'm going to call you up when I'm down in Austin. I like to go to. I have some good friends down there. And I, Great. Yes, please do. Yeah, let's time. hook up and go yeah. grab a beer. We'll get one of those famous Guinness stouts. <laughs> there you oh, go. Definitely. There you go. Well, again, right. uh, the book's called Loudmouth, thank you, and uh, thank you for calling in. Thank you. Thank you.